So hello and welcome to the Clinical Audited Improvement Podcast from AMAT, the audit management and tracking tool, which is developed in partnership with our users. My name's Tom Conlon, and in this episode, we'll be talking about managing NICE guidance and the challenges in obtaining statements of compliance, as well as the role of NICE in assisting and providing tools to do so. Our two guests today are Nicola Hurton and James Osborne. James is NICE manager at University Hospitals, Bristol and Western NHS Foundation Trust. He joined the NHS in 1977 as a biomedical scientist in the pathology department of the Bristol Royal Infirmary. Since then, James has gained experience in the principles and practice of evidence-based medicine. The development of guidelines and SOPs, the need for rigorous internal and external quality assurance, and the provision of clinical data to support research and clinical audit. Nicola, Nicola joins us from Leicestershire's Partnership NHS Trust. She joined the NHS in 2004 to lend administrative expertise in a variety of roles, from physiotherapy to long-term conditions, eventually providing support first for the Desmond uh, Diabetic Education Training Programme and then the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Programme. A combination of experience with people and numbers is what led her to her current role as NICE Lead and Quality Improvement Advisor. So hello and welcome to both of you. So this feels like a massive topic. I think it's going to be something we'll be returning to again and again, I'm sure, in future episodes. But let's see what we can kind of cover here in about half an hour. (laughs) A whistle-stop tour of all the issues involved. So I know from my role in adding all types of guidance to AMAT that recommendations come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, and they cover areas which may or may not be relevant to all organisations. James, I wonder if you could start us off by giving me an overview of the types of governance involved here and how that might determine what sort of approach to take i i think that the um thanks tom i think that the the approach uh, will vary uh, depending upon the organization within the nhs and the wider nhs associated family um uh, and to some extent perhaps uh, the recent history of the organization um, if, uh, for example, you've just come out of uh, a rather prominent national scandal, uh, you think of mid-staffs, uh, which has sort of gone into the lexicon. Um, in, in my day, uh, the Bristol Heart Inquiry, uh, and there are lots of such um, uh, periodic uh, scandals that sort of give a fresh impetus to uh, tightening up on patient safety, on clinical governance, uh, and accountabilities uh, of organizations. We're all familiar with the CQC, um, who uh, regularly visit all of us uh, and make judgments as to how effective we are. Um, We, in a sense, are forced to account for the services that we deliver. And part of that assessment is how well our services match up to that that is described as best evidence practice. And in England, that's largely set by, but not exclusively, by guidelines and guidance issued by NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Uh, The rural colleges will also obviously issue guidance, as will specialist societies. And that body of what constitutes best practice is a foundation, I think, for all of our organizations and all health professionals uh, and indeed managers within the NHS. 
uh, as to the sort of level of service, the quality of service, service and the depth of service that we aspire to deliver. The extent to which we apply governance to that process is, I think, is the issue because you could take a very uh, veneer approach, not too deep, uh, or you could absolutely every day focus on are we meeting some standard? Are we delivering something that NICE expects us to do? Um, and I think that governance light or governance heavy, and obviously there's a, there's a spectrum in between, is a challenge for all organizations and those of us who work uh, in delivering assurance around best practice and very explicitly to the topic of today, which is um, best practice guidelines issued by NICE and associated bodies. It's a challenge, uh, and it's a challenge that periodically gets harder and sometimes gets easier, um, but it's definitely a challenge, and I'm sure Nicola, um, who's uh, newer to this role, would, would appreciate also, uh, very keen to hear her views as to how it is from a different sort of organization to mine, a large acute trust, how, how those challenges represent uh, and present to her. Nicola, do you want to jump in here and, and tell us where kind of you fit into all this governance light, governance heavy? Yeah, I think we, we veer towards a, a governance medium sort of approach. Um, and we are a community um, and mental health trust. So much of the guidance, the nice guidance that's published isn't relevant to us. Um, when we go through it each month, we look at it and we just go, that's acute, that's acute. So your job must be huge, James, um, looking at the, all the guidance that's relevant to acute trusts. But yeah, agree with what um, what James has said about um, the, the governance approach. Um, just to sort of, um, we obviously look at this, what the CQCs say, but also the sequins and the quality schedule um, guidelines that are imposed on us by our, um, imposed is a bit of a heavy word, isn't it? Um, by our um, CCG, um, our clinical commissioning group, and also the high priorities that we have within the trust um, that we sort of focus on. And we can then link that back into nice guidance and use that to support our work in order to um, to build on, on what our priorities are. And of course, the, the, the Royal College's um, guidelines that James also mentioned, um, in particular, we've got ones that we're working on with the Sexual Safety Collaborative, per Perinatal Mental Health and things like that. And, um, and yeah, we, we use AMAT to, to look at those as well. That's fantastic. So how, how do you decide what guidance? How, how is that managed? How, how, how do you decide which guidance that you you, um, you you go into more detail with and which you take a bit of a kind of a lighter approach on? I suspect that we both, Nicola and I, uh, and anybody who's listening to this podcast has a similar sort of process, which is sometimes on a daily, perhaps on a weekly or a monthly basis, we will review what's recently come out um, and make a judgment um, initially individually, but then that's no doubt uh, verified by uh, a collective group within our organizations as to whether we're going to take uh, a, a very light touch, perhaps perhaps do no more than cascade the guidance uh, to relevant key people, um, or to actually do an in-depth analysis, uh, a full compliance assessment report, um, and follow that up um, perhaps with uh, other initiatives, whether that be clinical audit, uh, the 
writing of a local guideline, updating of patient leaflets, all of that sort of work that follows on from uh, fr- from an initial stock take of where we think we are with uh, that, that latest guidance, um, whether that's from NICE or from somebody else. So, so it's. I think it's a. It, it, there's not a hard and fast rule. Um, I, I, sometimes I've been caught out. Uh, certainly, we've been caught out where, where guidance that we thought was not particularly relevant to us. Actually, there were little niches of it that were, um, and and so uh, and, and sometimes the other side of it, you know, that uh, we thought it was far more impactful than it actually turned out to be. Uh, so I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. Uh, it literally is a case of first of all looking at the guidance, reading it in some detail. And then with colleagues making an assessment as to its significance to the trust and the services it's commissioned to provide. Um, it's not rocket science in that sense. Uh, it's just a case of having a process to deliver that. So do does the, Nicola, does the sort of recent, um, does CQC findings kind of come into this for you? Do you kind of find that what, what they're saying feeds back and then that guides you in, in your approach? Yes, it can do. Um, um, yeah, use, using whatever nice guidance will support um, the recommendations and the actions that the CQC have, have given to us in our report. And we, like James, I, I review the guidelines with um, a clinical colleague because I'm not clinically trained um, to see whether or not it's relevant. Um, and if it is, we then approach team teams or individuals within our directorates because we've got three directorates um, covering community health services, families, young people and children and mental health services um, and whichever one it's relevant to or more than one it, uh, depending on the guideline. We would then review the guidelines and fill in the document, the, the baseline assessment tool that's published by NICE. Um, we don't tend to take a, a light approach in many cases, we tend to do a full review of the of the, the baseline assessment tool if that guideline is relevant to us, providing evidence um, and um, aiming for a hundred percent compliance, um, and then taking it through a governance route if it's not compliant for uh, the clinical effectiveness group to sign it off or or take further action if they feel the need. I see. So is that because? You have fewer guidelines to to, to kind of uh, to manage, and therefore you've got the resources. Or or is it because of of the, the community mental health aspect versus the acute? Probably both. Yeah, for us it would be both. Would resourcing make a difference for you as as well, James? Um, I think we're reasonably well resourced, and and in part that's because of the history of our organization. As I said, I referred earlier to uh, the Bristol Heart Inquiry. And so in the wake of that inquiry, there was substantial uh, resource put into uh, governance as a whole, um, which most of which has been retained, in fact, uh, expanded, certainly on the, on the patient safety side of things. Uh, so I don't think it's, it's per se for us locally here an issue of resource. It's more a case of do we just focus on nice clinical guidelines? Do we address the whole breadth of nice guidance 
the quality standards, the medical technologies guidance, the interventional procedures guidance, and everything else that NICE produce. Do we broaden that beyond not just NICE to guidance issued by the Royal Colleges, by special, and and that's that's something that you can expand and limit and make a judgment call, yes, to some extent on your capacity and indeed the capacity of the clinical teams to respond because I'm, I'm often conscious of sort of tapping effectively somebody on the shoulder who's very busy clinically and saying, there's a new guideline on something. We'd like you to write a report on something or we'd like you to, to complete something. You want naturally uh, to keep uh, that to a relative minimum uh, but to get the benefits of doing it, which is to identify those areas of practice uh, that we need to address. Uh, and as I say, updating of patient leaflets, of patient guide, of, you know, all of that sort of work that supports the delivery of best practice. It's being able to to balance the the time that you spend reviewing, and it could be up to 300 recommendations. I've just done the stop smoking one, and there's probably more like 400 on that one. Um the one that's recently been published, it's weighing up the time that you spend reviewing that with somebody and then the benefits of getting that out to the people on the front line, the people that need to see and know what the guidelines are and then actually being able to refer back to those guidelines. For instance, when they're asked about it, when the CQC come visiting, um, do they know about NICE guidelines and how that impacts on their practice? And, you know, that's something that... We, I know we're doing, hoping to do, well, we're going to be doing some work on to make sure that that is as, if, as effective as it can be, um, to make sure that, that the guide, yeah, we've reviewed it with somebody at management level, but how does it then impact on the, the staff on the front line who are doing that, should be doing that practice um, with patients and service users every day? The, 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 the other issue um, I think is, and I think Nicola mentioned it earlier, which is when something pops up, uh, it could be something from a CQC report or it could be a CQC report that's not necessarily trust-specific but a national report. Um, it, it could be something I'm, I'm thinking very recently around the Ockenden report, the um, the report into maternity services that, that was in the news uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I think our trust, which has a, a maternity, uh, a couple of maternity units, like many other hospital trusts that have got maternity services, uh, will have naturally looked to see and update their assessments uh, on on those sorts of nice guidance and other guidance relevant to that service. That's only a sort of a natural response, I think, to something that's popped up. Um, so we do stuff at publication, um, but we also will, as Nicola say. Uh, said uh, do some reactive stuff um, from outside the approach we take here in Bristol is by and large the guide the guidelines that impact on the acute trust will will go the full hog will 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 do a, a full baseline assessment report um, the guidance that sometimes is more difficult for us is one where it's, you know, as Nicola says, many hundreds of recommendations, but there's only 15 or 20 that perhaps that that relate very specifically to us as acute trust. It might be a, a, an issue that's predominantly dealt with in primary care. Um, the, I know that Nicola's trust has got um, mental health services. Um, now, obviously, we have 
people with depression and anxiety uh, and the whole spectrum of mental health disorders that come through our doors uh, any any day of the week. Um, but we're not commissioned to provide primary mental health services. So, you know, that's an example of, of guidelines where we, we sometimes uh, – either struggle to get the uh, a full assessments back uh, within the time scale that we would like uh, or, or perhaps we make a judgment call where we'll only address one particular issue. There's a tendency here, um, and, and we're both victims of it, um, to think within our silos. Um, uh, you know, from the from the public perspective and the patient perspective, with diabetes or with cancer or with mental health or a whole range of disorders or conditions, you know, they'll they'll start their journey perhaps in primary care. Uh, there's an element uh, that might be around what happens in if if it's if it's a, in, an accident within paramedics and the ambulance trust. Uh, there's a, there's an issue around uh, emergency care. There's a, an issue around. Uh, uh, follow-up. There's a, a, an issue perhaps around uh, community services. Um, you know, that patient pathway uh, for a lot of diseases, uh, which NICE guidelines often cover the entire pathway, um, straddle multiple organizations. And I think there's always a tendency because of the nature of the silos that we have within the NHS to address our little bit of the silo um, rather than the entire pathway. Uh, it's very rare in my experience. I, I know it does happen. It's very rare for um, there to be pan-community uh, projects going robustly into guidelines. It does happen. I, I hear I hear it does happen in some enlightened parts of the country. Um, it doesn't really happen here in Bristol. I, I don't know if it happens in, in Leicestershire where Nicola's from, but um, I, I think that's a, that's a general weakness. And it's very interesting. Tools like AMAT – um, actually facilitate that sort of pan-community approach or theoretically could uh, could support that. So it'll be very interesting to see the development of ICSs within the NHS where our individual silos are being encouraged uh, to work more closely together and collaboratively together, whether that extends to the world of governance uh, around clinical audit, around what we do with guidelines. That I think that will be very interesting to see how that develops over the next five years. I don't know if, Nicola, you've got thoughts on that at all from your perspective. No, I was just going to say it, it, the, the, the pan working across teams doesn't doesn't happen as much as possibly it could do or we would like to. But yes, agree that the, um, the ICS um, approach will, I think, change things. And that's yet, yet to come knocking on my door, but I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will as well. So you both mentioned it during this uh, conversation about clinical teams and clinicians and getting them involved. I'm wondering if you could both talk about uh, how to how you engage with them, how you get them to, like you said, they're all very busy, they're at the front line, how you get them to respond to updated guidance as well as new guidance. Well, it, it probably starts with either a phone call or an email. Um, uh, usually... Uh, informing them that a new guideline has been published um, and, and we'd like to discuss some form of assessment. Um, uh, sometimes that'll be followed up with uh, a face-to-face meeting. Um, uh, that's probably how it starts for, for, for me most of the time. Um, 
we don't dive in right into the depth of the swimming pool. We'll sort of yeah. approach it gently, perhaps, um, but but know that we're going to be approaching the deep end at some point. <laughs> you bring the uh, rubber ring out with them. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we we have what you might call repeat offenders. So, um, uh, you know, depending upon the um, uh, the clinical area, you know, when when they get a phone call or an email from me, they quite often know exactly what it's about. <laughs> That's just what I was going to say. We have repeat offenders as well. Um, it tends to be similar people that are that um, are nominated within within certain teams and uh, I've, I've built up a, quite a rapport. Um, I think there's a lot of networking um, as part of my job. Um, I'm known as the nice lady within the trust, um, although my official title is the nice and effectiveness officer. Um, and they, they tend to know that I'm nice with the big capital letters and small letters. And um, yeah, they know when, when, when I email them, the, 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 there's some uh, a baseline assessment tool to go through. But I have found it a lot easier on Teams since we've been, because we've been working from home um, throughout COVID, um, meeting up with somebody via Teams, sharing the baseline assessment tool. They talk, I type, and um, they love it. The fact that this, that's the support I can give them. I know what sort of evidence is um, acceptable, what sort of thing to ask for, the different types of questions, um, and how how sometimes NICE's recommendations can be a little um, complex to understand, probably, um, and sort of you have to read it several times before you go, that's what they mean, um, and who, who it actually applies to. So, um, you know, with the experience I've had over the last six years doing these forms, um, they, they definitely like it rather than me just sending the form saying to them saying fill that back fill that in send it back to me within three months i i, I think it's uh, it's it's a lot harder sometimes when the guideline is you know and there are some that are three four hundred recommendations long um and and you know sometimes on topics that surprise you we recently looked at um the guideline on sleep apnea and some associated sleep disorders. Um, and, you know, it is over 400 recommendations long. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, colorectal cancer uh, that came out a, a, a little while ago, uh, less than 100. And, and you, <laughs> you, you sometimes get surprised uh, that, that the guidelines are constructed as they are. It's a lot easier, I think, when guidelines are, are, are really tightly focused. Um, it, it's a bugbear of mine, and I know some clinicians dislike it as well. When you get a, a guideline that is full of recommendations that says, and follow the recommendation in another guideline, it just seems slightly repetitive. And uh, I know to some people it can be helpful, but it, it just in, inflates the process a bit. Um, the, the other, I think, I, I'm a, I can remember when NICE started producing guidelines, uh, they, they highlighted a subset. So you could have a guideline with perhaps 150 recommendations or something, but they would identify a subset, um, perhaps uh, a dozen or so, uh, and explicitly label them in the guideline as priority recommendations. Um, and this is going back a number of years now. Uh, and at the time, for some topics, uh, we would just focus on those priority recommendations. 
rather than, if you like, the full panoply uh, of the guidelines as a whole. Or indeed, we might say, well, can we have the assessment on the priority recommendations first? And you can take a few months to go through the whole guideline in, in with your colleagues. It's interestingly, uh, the quality standards that I think a lot of organizations struggle with what to do with. Uh, intellectually, the quality standard is almost a return to that subset of priority recommendations. If, if you disentangle what a quality standard is, it, it comprises of so-called quality statements that effectively echo recommendations from a guideline, plus quality measures, which uh, are sort of helpful audit tools and outcome measures. Uh, that you could follow up and, and look at more robustly. Uh, a, a complaint of mine of NICE is why don't they publish the quality standard at the same time as they publish the guideline? It's the same people who develop both. You know, it's the same development teams that agree both because you could then effectively focus initially perhaps on those quality statements from the quality standard, which were effectively the priority recommendations of the full guideline. And then get that done quickly, and then over a period of time address the full guideline. But um, it is what it is. I mean, do you have a view on the quality standards, Nicola? We, we, I think, frankly, have changed our mind recently about what to do with them. Yes, we they we didn't used to do much with them. We just used to look at the, the evidence that we that we provided for the for the full guideline and sort of copy it over because each statement within the quality standard will have its source guidance and generally that is in um, a clinical guideline or a nice guideline the ng or cg ones so we would copy over the evidence and go there you go is it still right yes fine but now what we're doing is um, particularly for the ones that link to our high priorities within the trust so for instance we've we've done the um, the pressure ulcers one just recently. We've used the NICE guideline um, on pre the quality standard rather on pressure ulcers to set up an audit on AMAT. So we are linking um, that um, warden area audit to the statements within um, that quality standard that help us then assess ourselves. So we know that we are sort of providing, because that's what quality standards are for, isn't it? It's to, uh, to, to make sure that you're giving the best care around those high priority areas from that guideline. Um, so that so that's how we're changing using them. We still do the assessment, um, but if it's something more high priority, we will then um, use the the, the um, to use AMAT and, and put it on an audit. And and do you essentially recommend that they they should do an audit, or do, or do you leave it to clinical discretion as to whether or not to pick up that challenge and, and do do the audit based on the quality standard? That would be down to clinical discretion because we're very conscious of not doing audits for audit's sake um, because you could end up auditing everything and not do anything else so yes it, it would be down to, to clinical discretion so that's very much like like us here um i i must admit when quality standards first came in uh some years ago i mean they they sort of looked and feel felt as if they were uh, sort of possible nationally mandated quality measures in in in, in development um but it's turned out not to take that route, obviously, um, 
which I think probably most of us are quite thankful of. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the quality—it's it, very—it's it, it's an interesting debate. It's whether quality standards we treat differently or alongside the guideline, um, because by and large, most quality standards will have an associated nice guideline. There's a there's a handful that don't, but most will. Um, but I, ju- I just wish they came out at the same time. Uh, as the guideline itself, that's that's my only criticism. Well, I have lots of criticisms of NICE, but that's certainly one criticism I would make. Um, in in terms of of uh, of of whether we talked about at the beginning, you know, governance light or governance heavy, um, our approach once we have our assessments back, uh, depending upon what we see, we'll say thank you very much. If there are lots of issues, it might be that we'll we'll ask for an update after a year or something. I mean, I mean do you take the same sort of approach, Nicola? Uh, do you just file them and, or, or, or do further work? If it's, if it's 100% compliant, we would just file it um, um, in the right place. We would disseminate it through the governance routes for sign-off, etc. We wouldn't necessarily review it unless NICE published an update or unless there was any aspect of it that wasn't 100% compliant. If there was a few odd recommendations that aren't compliant and that would be signed off through our clinical effectiveness group, we then review those on an annual basis just to say, is this still not compliant? But just to say, we've looked at it and take any actions that we need to as necessary. Um, uh, one of the things that we sometimes debate here in Bristol is is, is how, w- what should be the gap before we ask for an update? You know, um, should it be uh, on occasions we've asked for an update within six months? Um, um, but in terms of sometimes commissioning timescales, that's the blink of an eye. Uh, you know, sometimes it literally takes uh, uh, two to three years uh, to reconfigure a service, get commissioner support for something that you need to introduce to be better aligned. Uh, you know, intellectually, I would love to have um, annual updates uh, or annual refreshes, particularly as NICE is starting to sort of move towards updating their guidelines, albeit somewhat piecemeal, but far more frequent than they were that than they used to um but with so many guidelines relevant to my organization of course organizationally that's virtually impossible to deliver uh, amat uh, and tools like amat could make it easier because amat gives you the option of uh, effectively nudging someone to say would you like to update uh the compliance assessment uh the statement that you, that, that is online on on amat specifically uh, uh, do you uh, is it your team that's entering information to AMAT or is it the clinicians themselves when we're talking about the guidelines? It's me, just me. At the moment, we haven't got as far as um, allocating guidance guidance on AMAT to individuals because. Um, well, we just basically haven't got that far into it. We are using it to record our statements of compliance, but at the moment, it's it's just me that uh, updates it. Yeah, I mean uh, that that approach, I think, is uh, certainly it's the one that we we're trying to follow as well. Intellectually, uh, it would be really great if if so much of what we do could be effectively automated through something like an AMAT. Um, that that arguably would make our lives easier. But we said a few few minutes ago how how the the the, the personal touch 
uh, and the, the individually crafted email yeah, and the, the, the team's discussions yeah. and all of that side of it helps. We're sort of acting a bit like a, a bit of a midwife, aren't we, trying yeah. to sort of encourage them <laughs> to produce something for us. Um, and uh, just leaving it to a sort of a out of the blue AMAT email and a, yeah. an instruction, do this by whenever just doesn't feel right to me and this is it the personal touch is so important isn't it but it's you don't want somebody to be able to ignore an automated email you want them to see the person on the end of it and the reason why it's being pushed their way i mean even even cqc have taken that approach you know you, you could argue that you know the first time an organization knows about a cqc would be when they get an email five minutes before they turn <laughs> up in practice CQC go out of their way to build up relationships yeah. with organizations um, so that they better understand the organization that they can, when they do have their inspections, that they, uh, that, 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 you know, the organization know what's required. And, and, and that interaction between people is rather than systems yes. is really, really important. So this, this seems like a really good time to jump in with my, I've got one final question. And it's a it's a it's a, a magic wand one. So if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in your organisation to make things easier for you in managing guidance, what would it be? Nicola, do you want to? Or do you want some time to think? I would love people to respond to my emails, um, and then I appreciate all the challenges, particularly over the last couple of years. That everybody, but it's it's not just been over the last couple of years, um, and to see that it, to see the benefits of being able to review that guideline, those guidelines, and the, the benefits of of it, it they can bring to their clinical practice. Oh, that's interesting. That was touched upon at our conference actually uh, the other week. That, that's interesting. James, your hmm. magic wand is out. Uh, well, of course, my first magic wish is that I have more than one wish. Um, <laughs> like, like Nicola, I think, like anybody who, who, who listens to the COG podcast, you know, you, you, we want to get everybody in the NHS back to a certain sort of normality. Um, I think we, we still feel as if we're a, a service under, under crisis. Um, and obviously, when, when clinicians and teams are in crisis, um, it's, it, it's harder uh, to get good quality um, support for governance. Uh, uh, that's my, that, you know, I would echo that wish from Nicola. Uh, I, think, I think I would love to see the ICSs pick up the baton around governance and start to chip away at the silo approach that we take, um, not just with guidelines, but also perhaps with audit uh, and other initiatives. Um, so much of the patient pathway straddles organizations. Um, Nicola will know this more than, more than I, but I mean, uh, th there are some recent nice guidelines that pose challenges because they cross the health and social care divides. Um, you know, I work in a large acute trust and it's very tempting for me to think that I'm the center of the universe uh, and I'm not and we're not. Uh, we're, we're part of a patient's journey that starts in our communities. And part of that journey is through an acute trust, 
but it's not the be all and end all of that pathway. Um, so I would, I would, I would love to see the opportunity of ICSs start to chip away at that silo thinking around governance as much as other issues. That would, that would be my second, uh, perhaps really first wish. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. Really, really lovely. Well, I think we'll end it here. It's clearly something we can come back to again. I feel like we've only just begun to scratch the surface of, of this. Um, so I'll just thank you both for your time and your wisdom and your insight. It's been really, really interesting today. Uh, if anybody listening has a topic they'd like to discuss on a future episode, then you can send an email to podcast at amat.co.uk. This is a platform for anyone involved in clinical audit or improvement to come and talk about the things that matter to you. We've got a very calming, supportive environment here, I hope. So just don't worry, get involved. And as ever, subscribe and share wherever you can. So thanks for listening and thanks to my guests again. Thank you.